This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is journalist and New York Times bestselling author, Maya Solovitz. We talk about her new book, Undoing Drugs, the untold story of harm reduction and the future of addiction, and her recent Scientific American piece entitled, The FDA Shouldn't Support a Ban on Kratom. So, this book's awesome. I read it. Oh, thank you. It's great. It's a really good history book, and it's like a collection of success stories. Um, a lot of times in books, if there's like a societal problem, we, we just hear about the problem, and maybe there's one chapter at the end about, oh, here's what we can do. But this is kind of nice because it's a collection of people actually getting things accomplished. So, that's pretty awesome. And um, yeah, and you were here for a lot of this too. Um, so I just wanted to start just with a simple question. Um, do you have a, you wrote a whole book about it, <laughs> but do you have like a short definition of harm reduction? Sure. So um, harm reduction is the idea within drug policy that we should be focusing on stopping people from getting hurt, not stopping them from getting high. And that can be extrapolated into other areas where people are going to do risky behavior. So you have to reduce the risks associated with the behavior if you can't stop the behavior. Yeah, and you said it does go into other areas like, um, well, I mean, this is kind of the same topic, but uh, drinking and driving versus banning alcohol would be maybe an example of harm reduction that involves legal drugs. Well, and I mean, the designated driver is a really good example of that because it only requires one person not to drink um, mm-hmm. and it is presumably a rotating duty. So it allows drinking, but not drinking and driving, which is good. So how does harm reduction differ from how we've dealt with drugs and drug users? Um, well, I would say the question says in the past, but actually that's still gone going today. So basically, if you're focusing on reducing harm rather than on stopping people getting high, you have to look at the harm associated with your policies. So if your policy is to arrest somebody for smoking weed and that person now has a criminal record and they lost their job and they can't get a student loan, et cetera, et cetera, is that really more, is that really less harmful than the smoking weed itself would have been. Mm -hmm. Um, So if your policies are doing damage um, and they're actually not having an effect on the measures that matter, such as are people getting harmed, are people dying of overdose, are people getting into recovery, then you really have to focus and you really have to ask the question, why are we doing this policy? And really for most policies, what you want is to not hurt people and ideally help them. So if you're doing a policy that is both hurting them and not helping, it's really not effective and it's a really bad idea. 
it goes beyond uh, policy and policymakers and law enforcement and into recovery and even, you know, how the medical communities views drug use. Um, seems like, you know, from at least uh, medicine, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm and harm reduction. Why do you think in, in medicine there's been such a uh, philosophy of that's apart from harm reduction? I think that medical doctors are actually and especially medical students now are really having an awakening to the fact that the way they treat people who use drugs violates the Hippocratic Oath. Um, I think they didn't see that previously in part because people who go into medicine have to be very good at school and following rules and Mm. uh, sort of to lack for lack of a better word slightly conformist. Now obviously this is not true for all of them but a lot of people in medical school, if they read in the textbook that, you know, marijuana is evil, it's illegal because it's super harmful, they're just going to believe that rather than check the references and find that, in fact, there are no references because you cannot prove that. That is part of why the uh, medical system has been so hostile. The other and probably more important reason that the medical system is so hostile to people who use drugs, particularly opioids, is that if a doctor prescribes to someone who's addicted and the doctor is unaware of that, the doctor can still be charged with things that are sort of called overprescribing. Yeah. Or they, if the person overdoses, the doctor can be blamed. And so rather than risk that, they just want to kick out anybody who seems to have any kind of addiction. And this goes back to the Supreme Court decision in 1919, which basically found that prescribing for somebody who is addicted, prescribing for their comfort is illegal. And you can prescribe for the comfort of somebody in pain, but if it's somebody with addiction, that becomes illegal. And so what is completely ridiculous about this, of course, is that you may have a person in pain who becomes addicted and now you're going to cut them off. Or you may have a person in pain who becomes physically dependent and you don't know that that's different from addiction. And again, you're going to cut them off. So because the definition of addiction has changed since 1919, when they really did believe that physical dependence, um, needing it to function was the core of the concept, um, the law is just massively out of date And this is also why you see these crazy regulations for methadone and suboxone, because they have to kind of pretend that they're not prescribing for the comfort of somebody with addiction and make it super tightly regulated so nobody gets the wrong idea about it. But that's exactly, of course, what they're doing. And that's actually a good goal. But the, uh, you know, we need to fix the regulatory system that sort of grew out of this terrible idea. Yeah, and that's how a lot of people came to Kratom. Uh, probably half of them were pain patients and were cut off. And, I mean, not half, but a large portion. And a large portion were using opioids, and they they wanted to use a milder one. There's, like, a lot of documentaries out. And then there's a movie with Michael Keaton coming out about the opioid crisis. And uh, you spoke about this in the book, I think, too. Uh, it's The story is, you know, Big Pharma... It was greedy. They over uh, they all the doctors overprescribed. You know, a bunch of people got addicted. Um, you said you know this kind of happens. It's like a pen- pendulum that swings. There's like a problem, then there's overcorrection, which creates a new problem. So how have these? Which now it's people can't even get 
pain pills for cancer now. I mean, I've even talked to a nurse um, that's that's my friend who who said, yeah, there's a guy who's in her 70s. She does home health, and he's in pain, and he has cancer, and he's like 75, and they won't give him anything for it. Um, so, And this is just so crazy. Mm-hmm. How does keeping a 75-year-old guy in pain prevent anybody's addiction? It sort of comes from the idea, it's like this misguided notion that addiction is caused by drugs. So if you prevent that old guy from becoming addicted while he's dying, because that would be sinful or something, um, (laughs) or if you prevent him from having any leftover pills that his drug-seeking teenager can get into, then you will prevent that drug-seeking teenager from becoming addicted. The problem is that that drug-seeking teenager is seeking drugs and they will find them. Mm -hmm. So if they don't find medical opioids, they will find street opioids. Now, obviously, there are instances in which supply matters and that, um, you know, maybe you can prevent one or two addictions this way. But for the most part, people with addiction are people with a problem who find drugs to be a solution. And so thinking that if you just get rid of the drugs, you will solve the problem is to completely misunderstand the essence of addiction. You said, you know, this kind of happens in, historically with drugs. How have these, like, overcorrective measures um, been overcome? Well, I mean, see, this is the thing. It always overcorrects in, in an extreme direction. So, okay. you know, during the 90s, um, doctors were pretty happy about, you know, giving out OxyContin, and it wasn't like the drug wasn't overmarketed. The thing was that you don't want that extreme but you don't want the other extreme. We need to figure out a way to balance in the middle. And I believe the way to do that is to understand what addiction is, what pain is, what physical dependence is, where opioids help, where opioids do harm, and not just have this, opioids are fabulous, everybody should take them. Opioids are horrible, nobody should take them. Like, it's just this black and white thinking that causes this enormous harm, you know, on either end of the spectrum. And I think what is tragic to me is that a lot of chronic pain patients who did benefit from opioids, you know, are now just having them taken away because somebody else is addicted. And I just think that's massively unfair. We, I've even had people on the podcast who said, you know, I was about to kill myself and then I found Kratom and it, it wasn't as good as the, you know, the doctor prescribed stuff, of course, but I, it at least gave me something, and I had another doctor on here who, who uh, Dr. Klein, he was actually, his DEA license was cut off because, like, one guy uh, resold the pills or something, and, right, and he was right. also a pain advocate. I, I think you might know him. He actually mentioned you in the interview. Uh, yes, Klein. yes. No, I do, I do know him, and I mean, yeah. what's happening to the doctors is something that I have been meaning to write about for a long time, and hopefully I will eventually be able to do, but it's just, it's outrageous because... What happens in this area of the law is really bizarre because basically doctors can unconsciously become drug dealers if the DEA doesn't like the doses they give out or if they're fooled by a drug seller or by a person with addiction. Mm. That is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. If you're going to prosecute doctors for um, overprescribing, I think there's two circumstances in which that makes sense. The guy is selling doses for dollars and not examining anybody. You know, anybody shows up with a cash, he gives the drugs. That's drug dealing. Uh, The guy is trading sex for drugs. 
again, not a good idea. Illegal, bad, wrong shouldn't happen. Um, so uh, it will, um, you know, those are instances in which it makes sense. But some doctors prescribing like massive doses that some people turn out to be diverting. Well, the way to deal with that is in a malpractice case. I'm just going to get into the book. It's called Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. So it opens in in the context of HIV in New York City in the 80s. Uh, uh, Half of all IV drug users in the city had HIV, and you were one of those IV drug users. Um, Could you talk about that moment and your first experience with the concept of harm reduction? Sure, sure. And I didn't even know that that's what it was called at the time because it had it hadn't even been named. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. um, the the concept has sort of been floating around for a long time, but the the movement and the name and the focus on it comes out of Liverpool um, around the same time when I was using. Mm-hmm. And so I was um, injecting drugs. I was not I was not at all ready to stop. I was, you know, just in a terrible time in my life. I was injecting drugs in a friend's apartment and a woman who was visiting from San Francisco taught me to use bleach to protect myself. Before that, I hadn't even known that people who inject drugs were at risk for HIV because all the media coverage I'd seen was really focused on gay men. Mm -hmm. And so she taught me, you know, you have to rinse twice with bleach, twice with water. I always did it more than that anyway. But the idea that A, there was a way to protect myself and B, people deliberately were not teaching me that way to protect myself because they thought it would encourage kids to use drugs. It just infuriated and enraged me because I basically was seen like a piece of garbage who needed to die as an example to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that is just not an okay way of seeing human beings. And so when I eventually got into recovery, I started thinking about, you know, what is addiction? Why was it that everybody said while I was using, I couldn't possibly protect myself. And yet I did, you know, I did certainly care enough to protect myself. And I used advice and learned and moved forward in my life when I was using, even if it wasn't visible to anybody else. So harm reduction kind of fundamentally challenges a lot of the ideas we have about addiction. For example, You know, if you're actively using, you are not changing, not growing, not going anywhere. You are unable to make any good decisions and you're basically a child or a zombie. Um, That is not the case. And harm reduction shows that because people do use clean needles. People do use naloxone to reduce, to reverse overdose. People do try to take care of themselves and they do change on the way to whatever form of recovery they're going to have. So for some people that might be using less, for some people that might be abstinence, for some people that might be using some substances and not others, but you do learn and grow while you're actively addicted. And sometimes there's people who cannot ever get into recovery until they learn better skills while they're still using so that when they have that coping skill taken away, they have something to replace it. So it's just we have so many things about it backwards. We think that, you know, if we just like humiliate and attack and be cruel to people with addiction, like that will fix them. When in fact, what people need, any people, is kindness and empathy and a sense that, yes, you can do this. 
Yeah, and it seems like, you know, the tough love and the shame stuff does actually just does the reverse of of helping anybody. You already have some kind of issue for why you're using and That's that's the fundamental problem with shame because addiction is often driven by shame. So more shame is going to make the addiction worse, not better. Mm-hmm. And we just fundamentally misunderstand addiction. Like it's written into the concept of addiction that it is compulsive use that continues despite negative consequences. And yet what do we routinely use to try to fix it? Negative consequences over and over, punishing people over and over when they have a condition that's defined by its resistance to punishment. It is ridiculous. And yet that is what our policy has done. And what harm reduction says is, hey, the goal of all policy should be to like reduce harm and make things better and make people's lives better. What you're doing with prohibition and the drug war is not doing that. We still have tons of drugs. We are, have the worst rate of overdose ever. Um, people do not get better from going to jail over and over again. We are just not treating this like a medical disorder, even though we claim that it's a disease. So, okay, let's reduce harm. And then when you just think of it from that way, all your measures shift. You're just like, okay, well, what, um, you know, what is harm? So it could be getting HIV, it could be getting hepatitis C, it could be overdosing, it could be, you know, not living up to your full potential, it could be a zillion different things. So how do we help people minimize those harms? And sometimes that will indeed turn out to be abstinence, and other times it will turn out to be cutting back or turn out to be, you know, getting treatment for um, something like depression or PTSD. So, it, you know, it's it's just so varied, but we just sort of put it into this box of this is bad and we'll punish you into stopping. And if you don't stop, at least we feel good that we made you feel that. Where do you think the fear comes from of drugs and drug users? Is it all the propaganda or is there something deeper going on there psychologically yeah my feeling and and i think the facts uh support this is that a lot of where that fear comes from is racism and fear of immigrants and fear of people who are Mm -hmm. different so we focus this on a drug that we choose to associate with those people even though white people may be doing just as much of that drug um and so it becomes a way to um oppress people that we're scared of and to stigmatize them and shame them in a sort of weird symbolic way. A lot of times people who are um, in favor of the drug war are not deliberately racist, but the outcome is because the way the drug laws were made is not a sober scientific consideration of risk. Mm. The way they were made was a series of moral panics over, oh, my God, black people are doing cocaine. Oh, my God, Mexican people are smoking marijuana. Oh, my God, Chinese people are smoking opioids, opium, rather. Um, it, it has to do with kind of bigger cultural fears about outsiders, for lack mm. of a better word. Yeah. In order to make us feel better, we just push all bad traits onto those people. And yeah. so those people that is sort of the ultimate term for a person with addiction. And it, it just creates all kinds of problems where people are turned against, you know, their sisters and brothers because they're the people that are making us look bad because they're using. And it just, it's really um, insidious and, and bad. If the drug war's goal was to reduce addiction and reduce drug use, 
it is an utter failure. If the goal covertly is let's lock up people we don't like, it is much more of a success. And when something keeps failing over and over and over and it doesn't work, uh, you would think that people would want to change it. But there's so much invested in these bad ideas and frankly, in racism, that it just continues. Several every chapter is almost like it could be made into a movie. Really, it's it's you could have wrote written a book about it each chapter i think but yes, uh, uh, the the chapter two is about uh dr john mark's practice in england and he which people would still be shocked at here even though i think people are learning more about harm reduction i hope here in the united states but he actually prescribes heroin to heroin users i don't know if he's still going but he yeah he no, did that. that easy to get shut down but um uh-huh. The, the policy in the UK is still that it is legal for doctors to prescribe for the so-called comfort of people with addiction. So mm-hmm. they can prescribe heroin, they can prescribe cocaine. They don't do it that much anymore. And it's much more restricted than it used to be in the days of John Marks, where he could just, uh, they could pick up their heroin at a pharmacy. And that was that. Also, I should note that heroin is used in pain treatment um, in the UK, which is not here. And interestingly, of course, we have a much, much, much worse overdose rate. They are unfortunately catching up and not due to um, so-called overprescribing. It's more due to uh, social deprivation, austerity, um, and and these kinds of things. That gets me to another question. So I was thinking about Alan Perry, who started the... Uh first needle exchange program in liverpool now there was like massive poverty there kind of like the opioid crisis recently happened and and the focus is on rural appalachia now can you talk about why poverty and drug crises are often intertwined sure so basically there are three factors that tend to drive addiction the first of these is sort of a temperamental predisposition which can be very very varied Um, It could be a predisposition to depression, and then you get the drugs to self-medicate. It could be a predisposition directly to something like alcohol use disorder. Um, So there's this genetic temperamental thing that kind of makes you an outsider and makes you different than other kids and has you searching for ways to self-medicate. So it's kind of outlying temperaments, outlying personalities that often are precursors of mental illness prediction later in life. Um, So there's that. There is, um, and actually there is also trauma, which can make a predisposition to a mental illness or an addiction from a predisposition that stays latent into an actual problem. And so trauma, you know, everything from losing a parent, witnessing violence, disasters, abuse, sexual abuse, you know, there's a zillion different ways you can traumatize a child. Um, So all of these also raise addiction risk. And finally, there's just this broad category of despair and hopelessness and feeling that your life is going to be meaningless and you're not going to be able to contribute anything and the economy is always going to get worse for you, that is where poverty comes in. And that is where sort of even not necessarily poverty, but a sense of downward mobility, a sense of like loss and despair at the future. All of this really increases risk for addiction. And you can just see it in, if you look at the addiction rates by um, income. Interestingly, there's also a little peak at the top 
extremely rich people can be as high risk, at least for addiction, as extremely poor people, but they have much more resources in terms of being able to recover. But if you are so rich that you don't have to work and you feel like your life is meaningless, this will put you at risk too. But obviously a much more important and much more widespread factor is poverty. And it just really, the sort of grindingness of being on the bottom of the social hierarchy and being told that you deserve that and not really having any alternative sources of meaning and pleasure. Yeah, so why wouldn't you use drugs? I had another question about Alan Perry. He had a clever way of dealing with the sensationalist media there, which is kind of like Kratom is kind of going through a drug horror fiction period in the news. <laughs> um, but uh, can you talk about how he handled the media um, to get his... So, uh, yeah, he was, he was really smart about that. And so basically what they did before they opened the needle exchange, they um, met with the editors of like the local tabloid and they were like, okay, we'll give you an exclusive on this if you don't report on it until we are, you know, figuring out what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so by doing that, they were able to frame it in a way of like, this is helping people. This is not like giving needles to junkies. This is about public health. And so when the framing started to be about health, rather than, oh my God, they're giving needles to junkies, it worked a lot better. And so they were able to kind of, because the media is kind of herd animals, unfortunately, and I say this as a member of the media, it is just <laughs> bad. If you can shape the early coverage, that can help you shape later coverage. And I think Kratom is a really interesting example. And I never knew whether to pronounce it Kratom or Kratom. Nobody um, does. Nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> so you just decide what you like it's to pronounce it's best? It's Kratom. Ah, right. uh, yes, Kratom. Yeah. That sounds sort of that's, more French. That's where it's that from. Way. That's where it's from. But I say Kratom. I gotcha. Okay. I don't know. Um, so anyway, um, right. So it's a really interesting example because previously when the government and the media has tried to demonize a drug, the users of it have been silent and have been silenced, basically, mm -hmm. because they're just druggies who don't count. Yeah. But with Kratom, it has been the case that, um, you know, people spoke up, people organized, people fought back. And for the first time ever, a prohibition that was planned did not actually happen. So that is, I find that really impressive. And I, and I think that um, the, you know, the people who, who take Kratom, Kratom, whatever, take the yeah. drug um, really um, should be commended for that. Now, also, one must say that there was an industry that had a lot of money that was able to help with this. And that mm -hmm. is a little bit disturbing in certain ways. But the bottom line is that this substance is much less harmful than both prescription drugs and certainly than illegal opioids and, you know, all the fentanyl derivatives and, and stuff like that. So yeah. it is, it would be absolutely insane in, in the context of an overdose crisis to take a milder substitute out of the picture. And, you know, ideally you wouldn't be introducing drugs into mass markets without you know, approval first. But since we have zero pathways for approval for um, recreational, for lack of a better word, drugs, um, 
you know, it, it just, yeah, it just creates this, this problem. I mean, if you think about it, we have no way for any other substance than alcohol, caffeine, and tobacco to be made legal, you know, just for people to like have fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so that needs to change because we can't just let unregulated things out there. There are really dangerous things as all these fentanyl show. Um, But the, you know, Kratom is a good counterexample that like indigenous knowledge of something that is helpful, especially in the face of a crisis, it should not be banned, but it should be regulated in the sense of that you really want to know what's in it. And our supplement regulations are not necessarily so good at that. If it's regulated as a drug, then it has to go through clinical trials. Uh, Pfizer, somebody will probably monopolize it, and it'll cost uh, as much as, uh, what's the CBD drug? Um, I forget what it's called. Oh, a Pedialex. Yeah, a Pedialex. So that's like thirty-five grand a year for the average person. Uh, That is so crazy. No, and and I mean, this is like, this is something, right, that needs to change if we're going to have safe and effective regulation of substances. Um, I think there was an interesting experiment in New Zealand um, a few years back where they actually tried um, regulating so-called legal highs Mm. and they were creating a process by which you could actually get approval of them. You didn't have to prove they were effective at getting high, but you did have to prove that they were safe. So this probably would have created a um, real market for placebos. But anyway, it um, it did create a pathway for people who were, um, you know, just putting these things out there to actually test them and get doses regulated and have a path to legal uh, recreational drugs of some sort. But uh, it got shut down politically very quickly. I really feel like if Kratom was used by, like, white people before before the Harrison Act several years, then it would be on every grandmother's shelf with coffee and tea. Definitely safer than alcohol. I probably could say that pretty clearly. No, I mean, what's what's interesting to me is just like how contingent it is which things were made illegal. Mm -hmm. Like marijuana was used in medicine for a while. Yeah. um, But nobody fought against the giant campaign to make it seem evil. You know, it is interesting that, you know, it's taking now to get back to seeing the medical uses that do exist for the cannabis plant. But yeah, you're right. Like, and Kratom is really interesting also because, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union went around making sure every native plant was made illegal, um, but they somehow missed Kratom. A lot of these prohibitions happened before the Soviet Union came into the picture, but it was definitely the case that the U.S. and certain other countries really dominated the international drug control regime in a way that um, was extremely colonialist and, you know, denied people taking substances that their ancestors had, ancestors had taken for, for, you know, millennia. Yeah, and and you did say in the book, I think I remember that um, the Soviet Union and the U.S., that was one thing they could work on together during the Cold War is uh, restricting yes. people's access to <laughs> No, and I mean, like, it, it's like, it's sad that that was the, you know, the unifying thing. Yeah. And I mean, it's just horrific to see what Russia does now in terms of prohibiting methadone and cracking down on needle exchange and not surprisingly having the world's worst HIV epidemic. 
among um, injection drug users and those close to them. You know, when you look at like who goes on anti-drug crusades, you see how much it is about controlling people that you are threatened by. In all of like Harry Anslinger was like just like an outspoken, disgusting racist. <laughs> like, oh my god, yeah. It, it was, it's almost like I can't believe this guy said these things. And it's it's interesting because it's hard to find a source for those things that he supposedly said. So some of them he may not have actually said. Oh, really? Yeah, but it's like he was definitely um, like censured by Congress for being a racist, and he certainly had many racist. Um, things that he did. So we know that he was, and we know that he was driven by, by that, and we know that he hounded Billie Holiday, um, but, yeah. um, and we know that he made up all this ridiculous nonsense about marijuana. But some of those statements, which are, you know, about, like, I think I remember the one about, you know, like how it will make you associate with a word I'm not going to use, and jazz <laughs> musicians. Well, I mean, one one quote that actually was said that you used in the book, and, and I actually use it for an article, is the uh, John Ehrlichman quote yes. about yes. the Nixon administration, and he just flat out said this to the reporter, that we were trying to... Uh, up the ante for the war on drugs because we wanted to stop anti-war protesters and black people. No, I mean, and that that is one of the few instances where people said it straightforwardly. I mean, and there's also obviously the case that Nixon used the Southern strategy, which very clearly had code words that were, you know, dog whistles for racism yeah. about crime and urban and, and drugs and all of this. No, those Anslinger quotes, it's like, I'm really curious to get to the bottom of that. Regardless of whether he actually said those specific words, he clearly was crusading against marijuana while um, knowing that it didn't do the things that he said it did yeah. and that it would allow him to... Um, you know, build a fiefdom for himself in the bureaucracy yeah. and oppress people and music that he didn't like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, how could you care that much about jazz? Like, that you want to suppress <laughs> it? Like, I love jazz. Like, why would you like? It's just like, you know, I mean, it's like if you don't like it, turn the channel. You know, yeah, like, yeah. don't listen to it. Like, why would you like? It's just like that whole thing about like crusading against like this particular music. But apparently there's another whole weird thing around that where um, square dancing was actually invented to um, counter swing dancing, which was seen as, you know, associated with race mixing and this kind of thing. Oh, I have um, to look into that. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's real. I mean, that we, is we, and it's really, it's really, really weird because, like, um, yeah, they taught square dancing in school, you know, because it is square. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it doesn't swing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um, and this is not to say for people who like square dancing that there's anything wrong with liking whatever music you like, however it swings. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it just is funny. That's hilarious. And there's a lot there's a lot of stuff about music. And I mean, well, there's the issue with hounding Billie Holiday to death. They did the same thing to Lenny Bruce. Uh, right. They probably sold them bad heroin at some point, but there's no evidence for that. But the other thing about music that was kind of themed throughout the book was that a lot of the rock stars who were rich, some of them were rich 
uh, uh, people who used heroin never got on board with uh, the harm reduction thing, which, in my mind, that would have been a cool stance because you're not saying just say no to drugs. It's not a square thing. But, like, none of them ever, um, like, you talked about Eric Clapton and Lou Reed had songs about heroin, but they never supported it. And you said the only band that uh, supported, uh, like, Needle Exchange was the Grateful Dead, and they didn't even and actually, I, announce I should it. add that you two um, also did some good work um, mm. in terms of that. They, um, very early on, they allowed people to do tabling at, at their concerts about Needle Exchange. Cool. Um, so I apologize for leaving them out. Um, but, um, but yes, the, um, the Grateful Dead was sort of more consistent in, in this um, and, and gave more money from what I can tell. And, and I want to talk about the Needle 8 chapter because I think that was probably my favorite chapter that had courtroom drama and everything. That's the one that could become a movie, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so I guess, so you were there to cover the whole story, right? I mean, there were some days that I was not there, which is really annoying retrospectively just because, like, <laughs> tape, videotape does not exist of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and it was very sparsely covered in the media at the time. So, but I was there for, like, the key moments. And so, thank goodness for that. Uh, the Johnny Appleseed and Needles. Jo- is it John Parker? Yes, yes. Now, he started, it, it was... a technically illegal needle exchange program in New York City um, and at one point and they purposely kind of released this to the media we're going to hand out needles who kind of a political thing the police showed up and people got arrested so it was kind of amazing because um, there was this whole crisis where the city didn't want to like um, the city had this like ridiculous pilot project needle exchange that was um in housed in the health department it was literally located across the street from the courts so you know who was going to go there but so the activists worked very hard to like at least make that experiment work so it wouldn't be a failure but the um anyway so when when that was shut down um act up and including a bunch of um people in recovery and a lot of widely diverse people decided, okay, we're going to go and uh, get arrested and challenge the law under what's known as the necessity defense, because basically Mm -hmm. it's necessary for public health that people get clean needles Mm -hmm. and they won. And it was, it was an amazing thing. Like, like I felt like I was like part of history, just watching it, you know, it was, you know, these people within ACT UP who were, um, Richard Elovich, who was a gay man and uh, performance artist, is. And uh, Dan Williams, who's a graphic designer, a black guy um, who did not have his own opioid addiction, um, but just felt very sympathetic to the cause. And it was very, very difficult to be a black activist within ACT UP. And to be a black activist supporting needle exchange was even more difficult because the black leadership of the city at the time led by mayor dinkins were extremely opposed to it um and so then there was um a trans woman um named katherine otter who went on to become i think a city council person in alaska and she was really interesting as well just and i didn't get to put this in the book but she had been through 
one of the abusive rehabs that I wrote about for um, Help at Any Cost, which was my expose of the um, troubled teen tough love industry. Mm. So that was a very weird crossover for mm. me personally. Um, but she wanted to be sure that people were, um, you know, she had, had her own addiction and wanted to, you know, help people stay safe. And, and she said one of these things about how, you know, she would go to NA meetings and uh, nobody was telling people how to protect themselves and, and people didn't know. And, you know, how sad that made her. So then there was also two lesbian activists and a nurse who just showed up because she thought that like the medical profession should be represented because doctors should have been doing this long ago um, and nurses and, and John Parker, of course, um, uh, who was a former IV drug user himself and had grown up poor in Boston and became the Johnny Appleseed of needles because he went up and down the East Coast deliberately getting arrested in order to make these necessity case defenses. And he won in Boston, he won in New York. Um, I will not remember precisely which other states he won in, but he really made a difference in terms of that. I, I like that the defense used the story of uh, John Snow, who was like a pioneer in anesthesiology in the 1850s in England, who vandalize a pump in England because he knew that the cholera there was a cholera epidemic and it was and a lot of it was coming from this well can you just talk about no that and it's like bit? kind of one of the founding stories of public yeah. health um and okay. so to you know to compare these guys to him was to make a very strong statement as a public health well and I mean John Snow was like one of the founders of epidemiology particularly because he mapped out who, like around that well, like where people got sick and where people didn't. And it was the people who didn't get sick didn't use that well. So it was like one of the very first examples of using like data to like make a point for health. And anyway, so right. And there's a pub named after him right near and a replica of the pump, which someday maybe I will see. Anyway, <laughs> um, the he was, you know, for Stephen Joseph, who was the former health commissioner of New York City, and who had been relentlessly hounded by ACT UP for some of the things that they disagreed with him on, for him to testify to in their favor and comparing them to Jon Snow um, was an extraordinary act of kindness as well as um, really showing how important this was and is to public health. And another thing from that trial was uh, the prosecution expert, Larry Brown. He, One of his main points was that a lot of these success stories from Needle Exchange are just self-reports from uh, addicts, so therefore they shouldn't be seen as real science. And, th and then you talk about later in the book where they're, they're actually proving through like rigid science out of Yale that, that, um, that it actually works, but... This is kind of where the Kratom research is at. There are, there are some great um, studies done by, uh, I talked to Mark Swagger and Zach Walsh, yes. you know, and 
even on our website, we have like a thousand testimonials that are unsolicited and the, yeah, and yeah. the science will catch up. Can you convince somebody with just self-reports or does that rigid, rigid science need to come in to... Well, um, I mean, I certainly do believe that randomized controlled trials are important and should happen and all yeah, of this kind of thing. Me too. Yeah. Um, I think that using anecdotes as data has been very dangerous in the drugs field mm. uh, and that you can certainly come up with fabulous anecdotes about plaque treatments that do real harm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I also think that completely ignoring anecdote and saying, you know, if you have 10,000 people saying this, like this does this for me, this works, um, that is the place to start for doing research. And I think, you know, with needle exchange, it was unethical to do a randomized controlled trial. So there's only observational data. And there's like that data where they actually collected the needles to see how much HIV remnants were in them and found that, yes, uh, <laughs> if you provide people clean needles, there's less HIV in them. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just uh, obvious. <laughs> well, it, it does seem obvious, but, um, yeah. you know, they, they also looked at needles that went into sort of the circulation locally that were obviously used by more than one person. And it still showed that there was an effect. But what I always found really impressive about the, you know, that that sort of argues in favor of the self-report data on needle exchange is that at needle exchanges, they also hand out condoms. And if you ask people if they use the clean needles, they always say yes. You ask people if they use the condoms, maybe 20% says yes. So why would they lie to appear good about the needles and not the condoms? Yeah, uh, chapter twelve, undoing overdose. It's um, naloxone to me seems like a no-brainer. It doesn't harm people. I was surprised to find out. I learned that it was invented in I think nineteen sixty. Yeah. No, uh, I mean it is like it is outrageous. But people just first people were driven by this myth that people who inject drugs don't care enough to protect themselves. And it took harm reduction for people to show that that is not true. And in fact, they can make very um, positive changes um, while still using. And so it took Dan Big getting out there and distributing this stuff and saying, look, you know, you could um, use a ton of this and it will never hurt you. It might make you go into withdrawal if you're physically dependent. But, um, it, you know, if you're having a heart attack and you give it to somebody by mistake, um, it's not going to cause a problem, although they will still need the treatment that actually works for a heart attack. <laughs> but um, it will not make matters worse. And if you give it to somebody who's overdosing on cocaine, it will not make matters worse. So the it's a very, very safe drug. It should be available over the counter, um, although Part of the reason that that hasn't happened is that insurance doesn't cover things over the counter. So there's kind of a debate about that. But anyway, I think it should be in every first aid kit in everybody's house. Yeah. Because whether you have a toddler who like gets into something or a teenager um, or, you know, your grandfather forgets that he took his medication two or three times, it's really good to have it there. And there is nobody who I have ever spoken to who I asked them, you know, if your kid was lying there blue on the ground, would you want not to have it? Yeah. And of course, they don't say that they would let their kid die. Well, then why would you deny it to other parents? There's no excuse. And I've been really angered by these people who say, oh, well, you know, it makes people more reckless. 
it's just like, no, because being reversed with naloxone is just not fun. You know, I, I like sometimes crudely compared it to like being interrupted in the middle of sex. Like it's not what you want. You are usually taking as much as you think you can take. So the idea that this would make you take more or would give you extra money to be able to have more is ridiculous. That reminds me of the needle sharing ritual thing that you wrote about that was in the 80s. Like people preferred yeah. to share a needle because it's like passing a joint. I know. Like that was like I always thought that was nuts. And and actually, my very first article when I was just starting out in journalism, um, my first article for The Village Voice talked about that ridiculous myth. Um, now, it is true that some people in the BDSM community share blood like a vampire thing. <laughs> but that is not the majority of people injecting drugs. Mm -hmm. The people who are injecting drugs, for the most part, are like, no, I don't want to, like, inject somebody else's blood. It's gross. And also, like, it can cause this immune reaction that is really uncomfortable. So you don't want to ruin your shot. If you have a clean needle, it's also sharper, which means that you can get your drugs into your system better and faster. So there's no reason on earth why you wouldn't prefer a clean needle. And there was only one guy that I knew in my injecting days who would like to use dirty needles. And I think he was like this really poor guy. And he thought that like he could get some remnants of the drugs, you know, and I mean, that guy yeah. died of an overdose in a bathroom somewhere. He was already HIV positive, not surprisingly, uh -huh. but at the time his girlfriend was already pregnant. Oh God, that was a nightmare. But yeah, that's what we were facing. This is about chapter 13, undoing treatment. And some of these treatment centers sound like cults where they break down people's. And one was actually from a cult, Synanon. Yeah, I mean, Synanon, yes. But the thing is that, like, it's not just one. All treatment in the United States that calls itself a therapeutic community is based on Synanon. So any 18-month residential treatment for most of the 90s and 2000s was literally using the tactics of a cult. And there's many other like examples where people started these programs that turned into literal cults the way Synanon itself did. Now, I would argue that Synanon was a cult from day one, um, but some people like to say, oh, it was originally, you know, this treatment thing and it turned it. No, it had a charismatic leader that was trying to force the 12 steps on people in a way that is really great for producing cults. Because if you think about it, okay, you have to accept powerlessness. So the leader is going to make you feel powerless. You have to accept a higher power. That will be the group and the leader. Um, you have to confess, which is a really important thing in cults because then they have something on you. Um, it's like literally a recipe to create a cult if you force this on people involuntarily. And it happens over and over in the history of treatment. But yeah, so Synanon started, it was a guy um, who was in AA and he thought that, you know, this isn't tough enough. We need to like do it by force and break people's personalities and then uh, we will rebuild them into, you know, good citizens. You know, he started this group within AA and then he got this kind of commune and somebody who had a heroin problem showed up and, and they got into recovery. So they thought they had the cure for heroin addiction. And since at the time there was really lousy research and they thought nobody ever recovered, everybody came to Synanon to copy it. And so Phoenix House, Daytop, 
um, like the major chains of therapeutic communities were all founded directly based on Synodon and often by former employees. That's Any insane. of those long-term residentials that are not like the 30-day, 28-day Minnesota model are based on this breaking down stuff. And although many, many of them have worked really hard to like get rid of that style, it's kind of like fraternity initiations. It's really hard to get rid of because people who had it done to them want to do it to the next guy. It's just bizarre. Like there's like people wearing adults wearing dunce caps and like not that it's good for a ch- child either. But <laughs> true. <laughs> I, uh, you wrote about COVID and harm reduction and and sure, so, how does that intertwine? Yeah. So basically, um, you know abstaining from socializing long-term is just not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Socializing is a risk humans are going to take because we're fundamentally wired to be social. And in fact, the way we relieve stress is through social contact for the most part. So in order to recognize that this behavior that is risky in terms of COVID is going to continue, we have to practice harm reduction and do things like wear masks, distance, in um, indoor settings, you know, but it's also like, you don't need to wear a mask outside. Um, It is really about taking precautions when they will do the most good and recognizing that human behavior is complicated and that people are willing to take extreme risks for things that matter to them. Mm -hmm. So how can we minimize the harm in whatever those risks may be related to COVID? So I, I'll just ask you one more question. Do you think there's any place for Kratom in harm reduction? Absolutely. It is like sort of your classic example of a harm reduction intervention because it is a substance that people like using um, and that provides a benefit, but without the extreme risks of something like fentanyl and even less risk than something like a prescription oxycodone. So it is absolutely a really good example. And I I recently wrote a piece for Scientific American about how if the Biden administration is actually going to practice harm reduction, they need to show this by not banning Kratom. Kratom. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Kratom's fine. By not banning this stuff that we cannot pronounce. Um, Because it is, um, you know, that will increase harm. And it's a really Mm. good policy example because it's like, harm reduction has to work in context. Like if you had a island nation that had zero drugs, which would be probably impossible, but let's imagine it, and you were introducing Kratom, that might increase harm. But in a place where you have massive amounts of addiction to much stronger and deadlier opioids, introducing it is going to reduce harm. So um, it is certainly um, absolutely has a place in harm reduction. And I'm sure people who use it um, have techniques within their using of how to minimize harm and maximize benefit. Thank you, Maya Solovitz. The book is called Undoing Drugs, The Untold Story of Harm Reduction and the Future of Addiction. There's a link in the description where you can buy it. Her website is mayasc.com that's m-a-i-a-s-c dot com the music is risey the song is called memories of thailand the kratom science podcast is written and produced by me brian gallagher for kratomscience.com take care